Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to episode four of the CRE Podcast. My name is Adam Pawatik, and I'm here with my co-host, Aaron Cameron. Our guest today is Ryan McCaskill. He recently made the switch from brokerage to private real estate syndication. And I know that virtually everybody that has worked in real estate at some point has thought about doing that. So that's why we're going to have him here today to talk about year one and how that experience has been. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. This is great. Yeah, absolutely. If you can give just a quick background on uh, you know what brought you up to, let's say, uh, your, your career up to the point of making the jump to, to a real estate syndication. Sure. So, uh, so I started with, uh, JJ Barnicky back in 2002. I was a sales trainee in the brokerage uh, division working in sort of downtown midtown office leasing. And over the years, as many people know, the company has morphed and changed, uh, different partnerships, uh, cross border, and then being uh, acquired, uh, sort of early, late 2007, early 2008 by DTZ, uh, which was then eventually acquired by a private equity group, uh, out of the U S who then, uh, shortly thereafter made a few other large acquisitions, one of which being Cushman and Wakefield. So by the time I left the company at the end of December 2015, uh, I effectively was an employee of Cushman and Wakefield. So JJ Barnicky to Cushman and Wakefield and a few stops in between over a approximately 14-year time period. And in that 14-year time period, I guess my experience went from being a sales trainee to being a full-fledged office leasing broker, uh, working in Toronto to building um, kind of a, my own corporate services practice where I was working with uh, a number of clients that had multiple locations across Canada and and elsewhere. And that's where I was sort of passionate about that side of the business. And then um, in uh, September of 2012, I took on the position of senior vice president and manager to manage the DTZ uh, GTA West operations, which was based in Mississauga. So I had a sales team and some admin and support there. And so we ran that office for a little over three years until the merger with Cushman. And then through that uh, merger, uh, things were changing for me within the company. And uh, I had had this idea and this thought of going out on my own. I've always wanted to have my own business. My dad had his own business for 25, 30 years. My mom was always kind of entrepreneurial in her own right. And so I sort of, I think, come by it honestly. And I just never had a, uh, knew exactly what I wanted to do until I started really getting more serious and looking into real estate investment. And, uh, so when things were changing for me, I looked at it and I said, if I don't do this now, I think it's just going to get harder and harder for me as life happens. And, uh, and so I did it and left at the end of December and I've been out on my own since then, just trying to get, get my ducks in a row and get things organized. So you're about seven months into the process now. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's about right. So just back and up years second. of thinking and about years it before thinking, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. a lot of talk and yes, so exactly. I, and maybe I'm, I'll hit on it. So you did, you said corporate management was that kind of when you you got out of sort of strict leasing focus and we're looking at more sort of the, the holistic management of properties, ownership of properties, you know, just the return on investments and all that kind of stuff. Is that where you kind of started to get exposed to that that aspect? Um, yeah, yes and no. I. Uh, yeah, let's see how did it actually start. So, I mean, I, generally speaking, and as Adam alluded to, I think everybody in the business is, if they don't already own property, they've, they've thought about investing or buying. And I had a, a gentleman that I worked with who uh, at JJ Barnicky and DTZ and 
just over the last, call it three to five years, I guess. I mean, it's kind of a wide range, but got to know him better, spent a lot more time with him and, and he's done, you know, some stuff over the years and in investments and, um, just kind of started picking his brain about things. And that kind of got me excited. It gave me a, a, a little nudge in that direction of, of understanding, you know, how could you make this a career for yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, if you did it go on your own, obviously there's lots of places where you could work that are already doing it. Um, and I looked into some of that as well before I decided to go out on my own. I looked, spoke to some REITs. I spoke to a few different groups. And, and um, at the end of the day, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to make a run for it. Um, but I have lots of pals and lots of people that I've picked brains over the years. Yeah, and course, I think yeah, I got to the sure. point where I just was like, I can't keep asking people about this. I got to actually do something. So, um, so that's where, that's kind of where it, where it happened. That, that is a big decision, obviously, because you would have had a good business flow when you were at DTZ. And so making that jump to, you know, where you're looking for home run deals is definitely a, you know, a leap of faith and you've got a, a child at home. So it's, it's, uh, it's gotta be tough, but exciting at the same time. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I have, I've got a, probably a little bit of runway, but it's, it's, fi- it's very finite and, uh, you know, I'm very mindful of that runway. Yeah. And so, Is it too personal to ask, are you married and what does she think about this adventure? <laughs> no, not at all. So, uh, my wife, uh, Kristen and I had lots of chats about this, uh, before making the decision and, you know, uh, she kind of got to the point where she said, listen, I, I trust you. I think if you think this is the right thing to do and you're passionate about it, um, and you know, we've, we've got it organized such that you have a bit of room to, to do this, then I think you, you do it. And her, her thing was always too like, well, if things don't quite work out, you know, do you have a, a backup plan? And, and, you know, I think there's, there's definitely a backup plan if things don't quite sure. work out. But, uh, but like any, any entrepreneur would tell you is that there's risk, there's, um, you know, there's going to be some sleepless nights and some, you know, cold sweat, early morning wake ups where you just kind of go, what am I doing? And, and, uh, but, but, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of them say it's, it's worth it. And a lot of my friends too, who've gone out on their own, just say it's the best thing they ever did. And sure. they think for me, it's the best thing I'll ever do. So, so let's get into the nitty gritty. So you, you, before we started recording, you said you were you know, initially focused on multi-res, but I'm just kind of curious how your, your strategy has molded over the six, seven months that you've been going through this process and where you are today and what the, what it looks like today when you're at, you know, going to sort of give me the pitch to, to a, a potential investor. Yeah, so I think that's one of the things I've learned is that uh, it's quite a winding road. Um, you know, I, I've, I spent a lot of time on my pitch presentation and I think that when you're starting, especially very fresh, one of the toughest things is, is honing in uh, and dialing in your strategy because there's a million ways you can go. And a million it's, people out there doing it, it seems like to me, sure. I mean, like, like Adam said, everyone and their dog is trying to, or figuring out how to, you know, buy something, but mm-hmm. unfortunately you need money to do it. So other yeah. people's money though, that's yeah. the uh, <laughs> go-to. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's definitely, that's a challenge. It's, you know, everything from how much money do you try to raise? Like if, and then, so there's, I mean, first of all, it's, uh, I, I was out hoping to raise a fund, a small fund. I was looking for about 5 million in equity, um, which, you know, doing the math on that, I figured if I could raise that, deploy that, uh, it would sustain my family for the first little while while things got up and running. Uh, the way the fee structure was set up, which is which is fairly typical, and I passed it through a lot of mentors. There's been a lot of mentor meetings, sure. you know, a lot of, you know, calling on those people that I 
look up to and respect in the business and who know what they're what they're doing. And um, and and there's been a number of them who've been very generous with their time. Great. And so that's one thing I think if people are listening is, you know, invest in those relationships because you know, when you need it, uh, there's a great book I read years ago called dig your well before you're thirsty. And it's just all about, you know, don't just think you're going to pick up the phone and call somebody out of the blue and, and expect them to really give you time. And you got to invest in those relationships. And, and so that when the time comes that you do need something that, you know, you've hopefully done some stuff for them and yeah. they'll help you out. So anyway, so I've been very lucky in that sense. And uh, to answer your question though, the, the strategy was, um, was to raise a fund. Originally it was multi-res and that morphed because I, talked to a lot of people. I was an office guy, right? Mm-hmm. I am an office guy. And so I had, um, a family, uh, member actually say to me one time, he said, why are you doing apartments? You know, that's just, it's a tough business. Um, you're an office guy. Why don't you do office buildings? And it's funny. I was telling somebody recently, I think I made up this weird story in my head that because I'm an office guy, I just don't think I can start with office because it's capital intensive. Because yeah, that's logical, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, you just start. And so that was my thing because I was, again, I was trying to go towards apartments. And I think that was my my defense of my my uh, my path. And was it partly so, just, I mean, apartments kind of seem like the, the low-hanging fruit, right? It's less... Um, yeah, you know, it's simpler, easier cash flow. Financing yeah, easier. Yeah, it's just it's a little bit, a little bit, you know. Yeah, it's more stable yeah, for exactly. sure. And and also like my mentor, the one who I mentioned earlier, he's done a lot of apartment work. So I think that was also part of it was that it, the apartment um, strategy, the way he does things was in my brain. And that's kind of where that's where I had my thinking was. And were you kind of focused on, was this sort of mid, mid rise development or were you looking at more term debt or are you looking at sort of reposition play retrofit by sort of underperforming assets? Like what was the, what was the real, you know, the crux of what you were trying to yeah, do? Yeah, definitely a value add strategy. Okay. Um, and I, I never, development was never uh, a part of my plan, but I, I would always tell people that I think it's inevitable that there will be a development aspect to things as I can't quantify it. I can't tell you exactly what that will look like, but I think it's only it's it's only uh, logical to think that in a value add strategy that there's going to be some development. You know, if you come across an app, an opportunity where you can add on, where you can build, where you can go up or sideways or what have you to add square footage to capture some extra um, income, you're going to do that. Like, mm-hmm. and you'll you'll just kind of figure it out. Like, there's people out there that can advise you. There's uh, Lots of people have done it. It's not like it's, yeah, you know, it's, 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 not totally, a, it's not a secret. No, no. And so you can get it done. You just got to think it through. And so, so yeah, so the, so the strategy was value added. The idea was finding something that needed some capital work, uh, needed some upgrades where the rents are obviously below market. And this is transition from multi-res now towards office, I guess is what you're, uh, it's where, so, like where you're leaning now. I've kind of come full circle because for, for a while, my, my strategy geographically was, was actually like apartments in call it midtown Toronto or like the downtown East and West. And so I, I bordered that by saying it was like 401 to Bloor and Bathurst to Bayview was, was kind of what I would call midtown. And then heading in the East end would be call it Jarvis to the beach and the lake up to like the Danforth. Mm-hmm. And then on the West end, it'd be again, Bluer down to the lake and the 427 to like Bathurst. Right. And for anybody not from Toronto, those are very desirable, very competitive areas. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. tons of stuff available. No one's looking in those areas. It's, <laughs> it's, it'd be so easy. It just, yeah, it's too easy. So anyway, so that was the original plan. And then, and then over time it, it, uh, again, I said it morphed to including all of Toronto proper, and, and adding in even some um, some like industrial uh, opportunities because I and I've even looked at some stuff that is very very interesting that would be 
and I'm not saying I wouldn't do it, but I'm coming back to the, I'm coming back to my original geography. And I think that the reason for that is I, I live in Midtown, number one, I walk, drive the area constantly. So I'm just, you know what it's like when you live in an area, you just, you see new stuff happening all the time. And whereas you, you don't frequent a certain area and then all of a sudden you go by and you go, Oh my gosh, like yeah. where well, did you, all these buildings you come from? You appreciate the nuances too of yes. the demographics and the neighborhood yeah. and just the way the ebbs and flows, right? So, sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then on top of that, I spent a lot of time, uh, when I first started in real estate, my first, uh, one of my first jobs or first projects was actually the bank of Nova Scotia building on the South East corner of young and St. Clair. And we, so we were the listing agents on that. I worked with some older agents, uh, at the time and, you know, we did a lot of leasing in that building. We had a, a couple of listings on Eglinton at young and Eglinton. Uh, we had some stuff on Bloor. And so like we were kind of my first taste of the business was all Midtown. And so I've kind of, and then I grew up in Leaside. And so I, I've always had this sort of like, you know, just always been around. So I, I kind of know the history of the area and how watched it develop. And so from that perspective, I've come back, I think to that. And that just, it's just where I'm excited about it. I think there's a, a lot of potential uh, for the future and I'm not the only one, obviously it's not rocket science. And so therefore I'm not afraid that someone's going to steal my idea because um, there's a million people yeah. doing it already. <laughs> and so, uh, so that's kind of what I've come back to. And, and so I would say now it's, it's really kind of a, a midtown, still downtown East and West uh, strategy, um, looking at office, retail and apartments and the industrial thing. I think I'll keep that open for opportunity. But the biggest thing I think that's important to mention is that the whole fund idea um, while amazing on paper, and as Adam and I were chatting before this, uh, is sort of the dream, uh, without a track record, it's, it's tough. I mean, you can get people to say, yeah, like I like your concept, but they'll always kind of say at the end, so come to me when you've got a deal and I'll, and I'll see if I'm going to put money in. And so getting people to actually sign a piece of paper that says, Hey, I'll give you 25, 50, a hundred, 500, whatever, a thousand dollars. That's a tall order when you're starting out. With into no, a, into with a no blind deals. pool. Yeah, yeah, yeah Like exactly, a blind pool. Yeah. So, and, and I, with and no I, track record. I think you said I've done it 10 times before. Here are the 10 products I've done. I don't know what my next one is, but it'll look something like these last 10. That's, yes. a, different, that's a different story yeah, as well. Yeah, right? and, and this number over here, this double-digit high teen number, that's the, that's the, the return. I've returned, I've returned all my investors yeah. over a 10-deal, yeah. five-year base, whatever. Yes, every performer has a high double-digit return on it, but... If you look backwards, not always so much. Not always the same. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so anyway, so that's that's kind of. So I've, I'm really, in addition to changing and being back and forth on on um, geography and that sort of thing, I've definitely come back to, uh, and, and this is really coming from meeting with a lot of senior real estate people in the last two to three weeks, like CEOs of REITs and presidents of large asset management companies, and just people that I again look up to and value their opinion. And the overwhelming response is. You, you need to come with a deal to so, get started. So then, my next question would be: How do you how do you get out there and get the opportunities to look at you know sales, right? Because I mean, I, I see a ton of stuff that's private sale or you know that, mm. that's almost non arm's length. I mean, it's certainly arm's length, but at the same time, it's, you can tell they know each other and they're selling from one friend to another. So I mean, what are you doing to make sure that you're involved and you're seeing the, those those opportunities? Yeah. So I, I think on that side of things, that that takes some time. So I am. I am actually, I'm doing some proactive, um, I could call it marketing or just call it outreach to, to owners. So one of the things I did, I have my, my real estate brokers license. So one of the things I did 
was I invested in opening my own brokerage. So mm-hmm. I've, my my investment business, I'm, I've called it and incorporated McCaskill Realty Acquisitions, Inc. And the brokerage is cleverly named McCaskill Realty Brokerage, Inc. And so I'm registered with RICO. I have my, uh, I'm the broker of record. And um, and then I even went and I, I bit the bullet and I invested in joining TREB, uh, the Toronto Real Estate Board, which was, um, you know, it's a life, one once in a lifetime um uh, membership fee you pay, and then you're a member of Trev Forever. But what that gets you is access to MLS. Uh, so I've got MLS as well. And obviously, by the time things hit the market publicly like that, you're you know then kind of in competition potentially with other people. But I will say that it it definitely increases your flow of information. So that was a I think a worthwhile investment there. Even um, as a lender, like I have access to Trev because I still have a real estate license, so I don't ever trade. The information is absolutely worth it. It's such yeah. a big body of knowledge available at your fingertips. Yeah, yeah. And then there's uh, there's other tools on there like MPAC and you, know, you can get the bit of Geo Warehouse. And before I even joined Treb, I actually also uh, I invested in Geo Warehouse. So that was another thing I did was to make sure that I had access to ownership information, sales history, all that. So I've got quite a bit there. And then probably if I, I, I joined uh, or not joined, but I also got um, RealNet for apartments. I got the Mm -hmm. apartments section. So I've got that and that's, you know, it's useful uh, to a point. It only captures sales. You're you're getting the stuff that's already occurred. So then on top of that is is, uh, just working my brokerage network as well. So, I mean, I was a broker for years and years. I've got lots of friends at all all the firms. And and so I've just been getting myself onto all their distribution lists and seeing all the stuff that's coming out that way. And so that's a huge thing as well. You're also pretty active with NAOP as well, aren't you? Yep, yep. Yeah. So, yeah, so I'm on the board of NAOP. And so, yeah, you just talk to lots of people that way. There's obviously a, a wealth of knowledge and relationships there. I mean, you name the the owner or developer or whatever, they're, they're involved in the organization. So that's great. And meet lots of good people that way. So since we're, since we both, Adam and I, are financiers, um, what, what's the, have you had, have you thought that through? I mean, you're going to find this asset and what, what's the approach to, to finance? Are you looking for high leverage interest only? I and mean, what's the, what do you, what do you think fits the bill for what you're trying to do? So for a while, my strategy was, uh, was an interest only call it for a, you know, I, I was calling it like a stage one redevelopment reposition phase, uh, and then, you know, be interest only for the first two, three years. And then, and then we'd go conventional after that. Um, but I, I think now I'm not as concerned about that as I am just finding the right deal. And so, you know, obviously there's some deals where you could do a vendor take back, uh, which is, which has some benefits to the, to the investor to come in and start with that, a uh, few less hoops to jump through and at the outset. But I, I think the, I think, you know, so I'm, uh, there's a couple deals I'm looking at. One would be it'd be, it'd be a bit of a redevelopment actually, I think. And, and so there'd be a bit of construction involved. And so from that perspective, I think there'd be, it'd be a, a much more, not intricate, but it's just a, there'd be a lot more moving parts, you know, when it comes to construction financing and, um, bridge financing, all that sort of thing. And, and where I would look to guys like you to help put that together. And, uh, and I probably too, I, I think for my first, certainly for my first few deals, I would probably, I will use a mortgage broker, I think, yeah. just to make sure I'm seeing the market and someone who can educate me on what's, what's going on. Yeah. And especially if you're doing something complicated that has some moving parts to it, mm. it's not, you know, you don't just walk into the TD branch and say, Hey, give me some, give me some financing. It doesn't work. That it's not that simple. Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Sure, sure. Um, originally there was a, 
a general feeling of how you were going to how do I was going to do it. Yeah. And and I think to answer your question on leverage, uh, I mean, I, I'd like to be in the sixty to seventy percent loan to value. Um, I'm not looking. It depends too. I mean, if if it's an apartment move and I can get higher leverage and it makes sense and it feels comfortable and safer, then so be it. But I, I think generally speaking, I'm, look, I'm going to be looking in the sixty to seventy percent range. I guess that's, that all cycles back to when you're going to investors to talk about you know getting an investment from them, knowing what the deal is, knowing how the leverage is, or your financing is going to you know probably spec out. That has a big impact on their bottom line as well, right? So, of course, yeah, absolutely. So it makes it interesting. We are we're about twenty minutes in. Do you want to jump to to new or oh, best and worst days in real estate? Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, uh, hopefully Ryan's got. Uh, Hopefully, his best will be making this decision to uh, real estate <laughs> yeah. syndication. But time uh, will tell. Yeah, yeah. So we'd ask Ryan to share his uh, two stories with us. Sure, um, that's a good one. Um, I would say my uh, probably my best day would have been I, the the biggest deal I've ever done um, was for uh, a technology company called FreshBooks, and so we did. Um, my partners and I, uh, Matt Stesco was, was my partner on the deal, and he's still at uh, Cushman Wakefield, and uh, Matt's a very good agent. So anyway, we, we put a deal together for uh, for FreshBooks, uh, which I don't know if you know them. They're a cloud accounting software business, and they've done extremely well, a real Canadian tech success story. Anyway, 75,000 square feet, we put them into a building. Uh, we, we've done a couple deals for them in the junction areas where they, they call home and where they want to be. And, but there was a really, it was a very interesting deal in that it was a building, um, kind of like an old manufacturing that used to make hockey pucks in this building. And the owners were actually gradually making it into, um, storage, a storage facility. Hmm. So we came in and we said, whoa, 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 like, you know, we, this, we like this building. And so they actually took a bunch of storage units out of the building to make it back into office space and then retrofitted to the windows and a whole bunch of stuff that they'd never, I don't think ever actually planned on doing. So it's a good thing. And so FreshBooks has been gradually expanding in the building and it's been going well. Uh, so that would probably be my best call it quote unquote day, but getting that deal done was, was a pretty cool, just cool the, story. Just the fist pumping moment of getting that big one done. It's a, yeah, it uh, just, well, just, it feels good. And it was a good fit for the client. Um, it was good for the owners. It was good for us obviously. And uh, good for the area too. And, um, yeah. So yeah, good repositioning of that particular that particular building. Oh yeah, yeah, and that building just recently traded too. So um, I'm sure the the folks that own that different different vibe around a building when it's a storage locker versus. Versus an totally. active yeah, office, yeah, the neighbors must prefer that. What's funny too, you do, usually you see self storage claiming ground, claim, claiming old industrial buildings. You don't see them losing ground too often, so it's interesting to see them uh, after retreat on uh, an asset. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it was a it was a very cool story, very cool building, and huge, huge, massive floor plates uh, right at uh, I guess like Dupont and. Um, Oh geez, we did the deal like three years ago, and and they're just they're just now getting ready to move into their final tranche. Is kind of how we structured the deal. Is they would take on uh, an extra call it ten to fifteen thousand square feet per year and right. for the first three years until they reach their seventy five. But anyway, yeah, it's it's been a good story for everybody. Um, yeah, worst worst day in real estate. There's there's been um, there's been some interesting ones. There was. Uh, uh, so I, I had a client years ago that had, uh, they were on a sublease at Young and Bloor. And unfortunately, because you're on a sublease, you don't have the same rights that a tenant who's direct with the mm-hmm. landlord would have. 
And so we we got the news. We were out looking for space for them. It was about 30, 35,000 square feet. They had two floors. And we wanted to stay in the building, but the landlord had a tenant that was a lot bigger, um, occupied floors above and below them. And um, anyway, we got the call one day that the, the bigger tenant had made an offer for their two floors. And the landlord kind of said, sorry, guys, but we got to, you know, landlord 101, we got to take care of our biggest tenant. And so our, that was that was upsetting to my client and to me. And so that that was probably a tough day when I got that news, even though we sort of figured it could happen. Uh, mm-hmm. Just that when it actually happened, you're going to go that that's that's too bad. Yeah, um, really now we ended up finding them a great spot and they've been there for years now and they're happy. But they lose um, some business. Like, what was no, the no, no, I don't think so. And it, yeah. And if okay. anything, I think it actually worked out better for them in a weird way because the space they were in, they'd, they'd expanded gradually over years of time. And so that you'd, you'd walk through different sections of the office and there was different, different types of carpet and like the walls were different yeah. and the furniture was different. And so we did a full brand uh, from scratch build on, uh, on one floor space. So we were able to consolidate them into a smaller footprint. So they saved money there. Right. They, they went, you know, new furniture. They just, it just uh, totally brought the company into a different uh, phase of their development. So that was a cool, I mean, it was a bad day that when we got that call and everybody was a little uh, upset, but then we turned it into a positive, I think, and, and things worked out. Did you, um, when you realized you had to call, the, call your client and tell them, did you rip it off like a Band-Aid, call them right away, or did you collect yourself for a half an hour and then give them a call? <laughs> I, I kind of go both ways with bad phone calls. I either take a breather or just jump right into it and give the, give the client a call. Yeah, I think once you make sure you've got all the information, I think that was the big thing is I wanted to make sure I had all of the different you know, uh, all the details about what was going on just to make sure there was no way to stay or to work it out. And I think once it became clear, which was pretty fast, uh, that that was, it was just not going to happen. It wasn't in the cards. Then I, uh, yeah, the call happened pretty quick. Yeah. It's always, always, the phone's ringing. You always have that moment going, oh, I hate to disappoint this person. I find, yeah, if I are. think about it yeah. too much, it just makes it harder and harder to pick up the phone, right? You got to just think and dial it or, yeah. or pick up the phone and dial. And then as the phone's ringing, like, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Right. Yeah. Otherwise it's, it'll take too long to get yeah. there. Well, and the interesting thing too, I, I think is when you do go through tough situations is, you know, there's the perception that it's a terrible thing, but like in this instance, once we kind of got over the initial shock of it all, it actually worked out great. So when you look back at it, you almost kind of go, that was actually a good thing. But in the moment, it doesn't feel doesn't that way. Feel, right. you know? yeah. and, and of course, you can't always say, well, this, is, this really sucks, but no, this is, this is great. Don't worry, this is we'll really figure good. it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a silver gonna, lining somewhere. Yeah, gonna, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know that in six months or 10 years or whatever, we're yeah. going to look back and think this was the best day of our lives. <laughs> you know? Trust me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's, yeah, it's all in how you look at it, I guess. Interesting. Well, we've got some news articles for, for, for those listening. Uh, Adam's going to talk about... Toronto office vacancy. Yeah, this actually, this story works well because Ryan's got a very strong background in, in uh, office. So I, this is why it's particularly applicable. So this hit the news, I think last week, and I, my jaw hit the floor when I saw it, that Toronto office vacancy rates are the lowest in North America. And of course, I immediately thought 12 months ago, everybody was Talking about the sky is falling. This is Toronto's going to be a disaster. We have all this this new supply coming on stream. We're seeing increasing vacancy rates in some of the B class downtown buildings. You know how are we ever going to absorb this all? And then you kind of you don't hear about it for twelve months, and now this it's a it's a huge success story. It's funny because because that was my first thought when I read the, the headline, and then that that is addressed in the actual article. They quote uh, Paul Morasuti of CBRE, who says right in the article. 
admits even he was way off on that forecast and he's happy to be proven wrong. So he owned up to it right away. The, the reasons the reasons cited for the increase in the, or sorry, decrease the vacancy rate is the young people are flocking downtown and the businesses want to work with those people. So they have to be downtown as well. Uh, the green belt is cited, which affects every aspect of real estate in the city. For anybody that doesn't know, that's a large rural buffer zone around the GTA where we can't develop. And so it forces uh, forces infill rather than sprawl. Not to say that Toronto isn't a city that hasn't has considerable sprawl, but at some point planners decided to stop that. And the third uh, reason given is the city of Toronto has been actively pursuing intensification. And this was uh, all part of a, man- a managed plan. Do you think, I mean, uh, you look across the country and Calgary is having the sort of almost the opposite the opposite experience, and, and is there any impact of sort of the Calgary, the Alberta market de- declining, and therefore there's some sort of non-oil and gas industry, you know, tenant saying, "Well, I'm I'm out of here. I don't want to be in Calgary anymore," and they're moving to to more of a service-oriented city like Toronto. Like, does that have any impact? Do you think? Like, what do you? What's your What's your feeling on this? So I, I can't say that I have any stats to back it up, but my thinking is that. What's happening in Calgary, while it is probably the worst they've seen it uh, in, in many years, uh, maybe ever, it's, uh, it's, it's what happens in Calgary. Yeah, You sure. know, it, it's just, it's a boom and bust town. Uh, I remember years ago doing a, uh, had a client who had an office space in Calgary. We flew out to look at space there. And this was at the, almost at the peak of uh, the oil. When they were uh, deciding to build 3, 000, 3 million more square feet of space. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so back. this was probably, I would say, a good... Oh, good five, six years ago. And uh, anyway, long and the short of it is we looked at, there was only four spaces that could accommodate uh, 30,000 square feet. And basically on a weekly basis, rental rates were going up at least a dollar a square foot. And we looked at four spaces, but, but within two weeks of that trip, uh, two were were unconditionally like firm. They were done, at least uh, leased out without having an offer when we first got there. The other two were conditionally leased within two weeks, which in uh, Toronto terms is kind of unheard of. Um, although seeing these statistics, it's it seems pretty crazy. But people have been predicting doomsday for Toronto downtown office vacancy for years. Like when they were building, um, you know, even the Bay Adelaide Center one phase one when they were building, um, it's just it's been people have been predicting twenty percent vacancy and it's never happened. And so I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not surprised that the the Canadian economy continues to I guess chug along well enough. But I do think that intensification has a huge thing to do with it. And I, again, I don't have stats to back it up, but the you know the financial institutions have been taking on lots of space over the years, and that's a huge chunk of, of stuff. You get technology companies coming downtown now. Who, obviously, Google's been down here for for a while now. Anyway, there's just a lot of factors, but yeah, I I point to in my mind, and again, I got I have nothing to back this up other than my own instinct, but the, the demand to live downtown by sort of the the the, jet, the next generation or, or the, the yuppie generation, right? There's there's a ton of sort of 25 to 30 year olds that are living in this core that want to work in this core, and I think if you are an employer, it may be attractive to have your office down here and attract that kind of type of talent, right? So it's mm-hmm. um, and, and they, I, they don't drive. That's the other no, thing. they don't want to drive. drive. And, you know, yeah. I, I almost think that the the the, the poor um, the poor planning done by by City Hall over the years and, and you know not being able to keep up with the the public transit infrastructure needed in the city has been a blessing in disguise, so to speak, just because. Because it's forced people to to move downtown and all the condo developments. Because it's just people want to spend an hour and a half commuting every day. So 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 you know, screw it. I'll live in a 500 square foot condo downtown rather than rather than you know spend half my life you know commuting. 
Uh, and the other thing that I've in my mind is, you know, the the amount of office space coming online has been moderate. Like, I don't think there's been a, just an absolute boom in in office office construction. Um, did you get that sense as well? Yeah, I mean, pent up demand. I mean, it is it is in the article as well. Four point four million square feet of office space built up in the last three years, and even you know, once you incorporate that absorption on top of that, trying to reduce the vacancy rate, they're still the lowest in North America. But prior to the most recent boom, there was very, very little. So it's, it could be pent-up demand as well. Yeah, and I, I wonder if you look at, you know, sort of B-quality office space in secondary locations in the city, if that, that, that's where the vacancy is being felt, probably. I know markets like Mississauga in the B-class there, you probably, you know, 9-10% would be market standard. Does that sound about right, right? Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, the, there's definitely more vacancy out in the suburbs. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, I, don't, I also don't think that the suburbs have, I mean, they've, They've seen some people coming back downtown where there was a push years ago for people to move out to cheaper stuff out in the suburbs. But again, I, even the suburbs, I think, are, are doing fine. There's pockets of areas that are not as well leased, but generally speaking, it's it's in good shape. And 9% is not a disaster for a building by any no. means. It's uh, yeah. Even now, you're talking about the lowest in North America. That's still a vacancy rate that's just barely sub-5. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, It's not sub-1%. This is you know sub-5. No, and, and even so, and, and again, you know, you've got downtown Toronto and all the all the development, all the, as everybody knows, the majority of the properties, especially in the A, AAA class, are owned by a handful of, of groups. And, you know, these are smart people with extremely um, smart teams that are analyzing the market, uh, that are looking at these things well before they go to market with a new development. And so they you know, oftentimes have something pre-leased, number one, um, or if, you know, take Oxford, for example, and they're building, um, I actually don't even know what it's called, but the one on Adelaide that they're building uh, right now behind uh, First Canadian Place, like, you know, they're moving in there, uh, taking however many floors of their office. So they, that's another strategy is that a lot of these groups can move around and, and occupy space in a new building to make sure that it gets stabilized and kick things off. Um, while they're a bit smaller uh, as a group, but Allied is another group that's always been good at that. They'll they'll move into a new building and then lease out their old space because you know they'll fix it up, make it look great, and and then move on. So they've got um, beautiful space over at One Thirty Four Peter, which was a, a huge huge success. Um, and and seeing office development like that in the downtown West node, it's pretty crazy. And they'll mm-hmm. they'll do a phase two, I'm sure, at some point in the near future, uh, next to One Thirty Four Peter, and, and it's just uh, the city's just. I've said it. booming. City's yeah. kind of been on steroids for like, you know, a good 10, 15 years. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, and, and it continues to go, mm. it seems like. Um, jumping to my... It'll one, never go down. It'll, ever, yeah, ever. Never, well, you know, never, I always, whenever we have that conversation, I always tell the story of my parents, you know, uh, had a little bit of money saved. It was like early 90s, maybe late 80s. And they said, you know, we could buy a condo. Um, but, you know, I think we're at the top of the market right now, so we're, we're not going to invest in a, in a condo in downtown Toronto. It, it's, it, it's, you, know, you never know, right, I, I guess. They, they the called point. it early. Yeah, they called sure. it early. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, as my, my mentor said to me, too, he said every time he's ever looked at buying real estate, there's always been a lot of people who said, but real estate's so expensive right now. You know, always, always, always. There's always people that say that. And, you know, even if things do ever take a turn, it's like, I think Toronto is, is in a good spot with immigration and with, you know, again, the intensification and just, um, there's just, it's just a good, it's good an place attractive to be. place to live. And so there yeah. means there's going to be demand for services and all sorts yeah. of different aspects and industries. Right. But so. again, it'll never, ever go down. Nothing, no, <laughs> never, nothing could go, so nothing, yeah. what could go wrong. So <laughs> never ending party that is real estate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
All right, so my news article. Uh, I'll keep this quick. We're, we're running out of time here, but but you know, and this is less sorry, less news and, and not an article, but more just an interesting tidbit that I, I stumbled across. And I'm fascinated by um, secondary markets, and I and I kind of mean that um, softly. Uh, it, the, the you know, there's a lot of focus in, in Canada on on the, the sort of the, the major five. You know, Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal, Toronto, uh, and Halifax. And you often get guys that say, "Yeah, no, I'm just not comfortable going outside of those sort of." Core locations, but um, there are there are lots of other you know valuable places that, that you could go if, if you're if you're looking outside of those 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 five places. And and um, I was we've got an opportunity here at First National to finance a, an asset in Regina, and so I was doing some market research and, and stumbled across um, retail vacancy rates in this in this northwestern section of Regina are less than one percent. And so you kind of say, okay, how is that? How could that be? And there's there's been a variety of new developments there. It's uh, it's an affluent location, uh, and there's just there's just a ton of there's just a there's a ton of you know potential for for retail investment, and retail development in this certain aspect. So I want to leave it at that. But it's just it's curious that there are places throughout this country that can be a very good real estate investment opportunity if you just know where to look. Ryan's on a plane tomorrow after hearing <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm on the red eye to Regina. I'm coming to see you, Mike Hogan. Yeah. Coming to see you. That's uh, but yeah, it's hard to imagine. A, it, it's obviously great for for that market, but the paralysis would have on you know new tenants trying to strike new businesses would be. It's, it's not healthy to have a vacancy rate that low. You no, kind of want uh, you know four or five to allow movement within the market. Everybody be clinging to the earth they have and not wanting to to move or do anything. It'll be interesting too to see how the vac- how, sorry how the uh, rental rates follow over the next six months because that's a lot of upper pressure or it should be at least in theory. Yeah, well, and I think there are new developments coming online to to take off some of that pressure, but it's it's um, curious how it got there in the first place, really. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's the show for today, Ryan. If anybody wants to get a hold of you and talk about any opportunity, yeah, good idea. What's the best uh, What's the best way to do that? Yeah, so you can go to www.macaskill.com, spelled M C A S K I L E dot com. Uh, just putting the finishing touches on my website. And then um, if you want to email me, it's uh, ryan at mccaskill.com. And would love to hear from you and love to you know look at some opportunities, bring them by, and uh, we'll see what we can do. We'll include uh, that information as well on the show notes at crepodcast.com slash four. Slash four, right. Slash four. And if you want to uh, tweet us, you can always tweet us at podcast. Uh, or visit our website, CREpodcast.com or commercialrealestatepodcast.com. Um, I don't think we have anything else. No, that's it. That's it for episode Thanks four. Thanks for listening. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.